Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. All right, good morning, everybody. Um, I think just about everybody was here two weeks ago, but just in case, because I preached two weeks ago, just in case you don't know me, my name is Keith Baird. I've been attending the church since, oh, I think it was like 2002. But the reason you don't recognize me if you come to this service is because I'm one of those weirdos that get up early and I come to the 9 o'clock service. So I'm home and gone by the time you guys get started. But uh, So if you didn't know don't, didn't know who I was, that's, that's what's going on. Uh, so today we're going to be uh, talking about the uh, prophet Elijah. Um, and is this not, is it not too loud back there on my Martin? Okay, I don't, I don't need a microphone, but... Pastor wants me to record it, so as I like to say, he can fix anything stupid I say next week. <laughs> he never has to, but you know, just on the off chance. But anyway, the uh, story there is in. Uh, we're going to be in start in First Kings chapter uh, 17. If you want to find your place there, um, I'll start talking a little bit here. Uh, so I want to show. I want to <clears throat> start first of all talk about the uh, description that the prophet we hear of the prophet, and that takes place. All the way in 2 Kings, but you stay there in 1 Kings. And here's what the verse 1-8 has to say. He is described as a man wearing a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. Now this could sound like someone else you know from the Bible, and that is John the Baptist. He's also described as wearing a coat of camel hair with a leather belt. So these two prophets share another trait. They are both described in the scriptures as rough men. Uh, the Bible does not, nor does the Bible describe them as, as educated. Several commentaries I read also said they were, they were in-your-face kind of prophets. Um, they were both actually recorded in the scripture as literally sticking their fingers in the faces of kings and declaring for all those that could hear, to hear them, the sins that do, those two kings had said against God, or had sinned against God. So with that uh, description in our minds, uh, we'll start off in uh, 1 Kings uh, 17. And here the story begins abruptly with Elijah appearing and telling King Ahab that there was not going to be any dew or rain these years except by his word. Uh, Several things I read also made note of the fact that there is no introduction here of Elijah. No listing of his lineage. And if you... Read in much of the New, uh, Old Testament at all, you know, uh, every time, a, most of the time when a Bible character is uh, introduced, it takes like a chapter and a half telling him about who his, who his grandfather, grandfather's grandfather was. So the Bible doesn't give us any of that information. Uh, but it is, actually, I was, as I was reading that, it also reminded me of, a, of another prominent figure in the Old Testament that gets introduced that way, and that is uh, the character Melchizedek. Uh, he, uh, this man appears to Abraham and his men after a great battle, and he feeds uh, Abraham and his men, at which point Abraham acknowledges Melchizedek's priesthood, or, fellow, or the fact that he's a fellow believer in, in the one true God, and he makes this a tithe to him of the tenth of all the spoils of the battle. So I spent, luckily I don't do this hardly anymore when I preach, but I kind of got on a little rabbit trail when I was... When I read about McKizeldeck, I spent an hour or an hour and a half reading about him because I thought it might be an interesting little, you know, time to take up five or ten minutes, you know, and, and so in case I didn't have enough information. But the more I read about McKizeldeck and the more I read about read the commentaries, 
Uh, nobody can agree on anything uh, about about his what his presence actually meant. So, so I'll give you a bit, briefly give you two the two sides. Uh, some of the commentaries I read actually said that he was an actual real king uh, of, of, a, of a country or land called Salem, that he actually was a, a priest that believed in, in, in God and that Abraham's recognition of that was proper. Uh, the other commentaries said that he probably wasn't an actual king of anything. He was, if I, let me make sure, I, got, I, think I, got it, I think I got the term right this morning, that, that Matizeldeck was a Christophany. Which is a real big word for basically saying a new, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. But I couldn't get more than one or one and a half commentaries to line up in the same place. So that just means the subject is too big for me, and uh, we're just going to leave it. Uh, we're going to leave it alone. Maybe Pastor at some point will go over it, and you guys will get the whole picture about it. Uh, so the. the I've read, and uh, so the, the, most of the information I got, it came from my uh, Thompson Chain Reference Bible. Uh, if you guys don't know what that word is, it's like about that thick. You know, it's huge. And it's, it's really good reference material, but it breaks his life down into 13 pictorial or theatrical scenes of interest. I'm not going to go over all 13, so don't be worried about it. I've already I told them, told everybody this morning. I already went 40 minutes. If I had to read them all, you guys would be out, wouldn't be out of here until three o'clock. So, but I did find out a lot of things about Elijah I did not know. If you had asked me last month when I got started here, uh, started about with this story, I'd have told you two things about Elijah. The scene on Mount Carmel, which is absolutely my favorite story about Elijah, one of my favorites in the Bible, which I will go into detail later. Um, and that at the end of his story, something interesting happens, and it's not really the end. I don't know. I couldn't find the right word to say end. He doesn't die, and he, but I'll get to that at the end. I, got, I have some important stuff on it. So if we, assuming we have time and I haven't talked too long, we'll, we'll get to that. So we've already seen scene one, his declaration to the king that no rain will uh, come until Elijah calls for it. And secondly, we'll see that God tells Elijah to go to this brook named uh, Kersheth, Kersheth, uh, that there is that he's going to be cared there by ravens. Uh, now, to me, it kind of seemed like Elijah's hiding here, which, which in fact it's true, but he's not hiding from King Ahab uh, because you know he's already told the king something that the king really doesn't want to hear that, that he's not going to let it rain. Right? God's not going to let it rain, but uh, Elijah was the bearer of bad news. God actually takes, takes Elijah to this brook and isolates him there for a couple of reasons. One was that the people of the time, as, as this problem of no rain becomes, becomes an issue, he does not want Elijah being, uh, uh, what's the word here I used? Uh, he, he doesn't want people to be able to exert pressure on Elijah to ask God to end the drought prematurely. God doesn't want that to happen. Now, the second part of this is God, the reason God wants to isolate Elijah like this, and all, the only context he has with the ravens is with the ravens that bring him food morning and night, that he gives Elijah sufficient time to bond with God in prayer and give him a strength of character that he's going to need and it's going to serve him well later on as God continues to use him in the story. So, like I said, he's being fed morning and night by the ravens, bringing bread and meat to them. 
And he also comes a time where the brook dries up. And at that time, God sends him to a place called, uh, I'm not going to get this right, but Zarephath, where God instructs a widow to feed Elijah. And uh, as we move into scene three of his life, Elijah meets this woman at the gate gathering sticks and asks her for a drink of water. And we'll pick up the story here in 1 Kings 17, 11. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and then afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So we, so God sends Elijah to this town, or to this lady, and, and, and this conversation takes place. And so Elijah there sends, tells, tells her, go bake, me some, or go bake me something to eat. The woman here, even though she's had instruction from, from God, has to be thinking, now look, my son and I are suffering already. Because of no rain and I don't have hardly anything to eat or, or, or drink. I have to only have this little bit. And now... This person I never know, didn't have never known, has comes and tells me not only do I have to feed him first, not my son. It's one thing if I go hungry. But I have to feed him first and then make. There's not enough for that. So she has to be thinking in her mind that there's something going on here, and she you have to you have to appreciate her faith when she goes and does exactly what Elijah's asked for him, asked for her to do. We see that this Elijah the pronouncement from Elijah is pretty big. And it's a proclamation of God's favor when he says that this little bit of flour and oil that the widow knows is only going to feed her, her and her son one time and surely not enough for that third person is going to last until the Lord sends the rain. Now, this could be seen as a, a very self-serving proclamation on the prophet's part, but it serves the woman and her son also. So it's an example that as we help others with, our pro- with their problems, we will surely be blessed in ways that we may not realize. The story continues for several days. We don't have any connect. You don't have any sense of time with it, uh, with no reduction in the flour or the oil. <clears throat> when I can only surmise because of lack of water, because the story doesn't explain why, the son falls seriously ill and dies. And the widow is understandably shocked and angry at Elijah at this turn of events, and accuses him of causing the death of her son because of her sin, sins. Now, let me. I want to read that for you. Now, two weeks ago you heard me say I brought the wrong Bible. The print was really small, I couldn't read it. I fixed that problem now. I brought my, my iPad so I can... Uh, oh, maybe. 17... Oh, I lost my place. I apologize. One second. Technology, huh? 
Alright. So after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said, Give me your son. So here, Elijah takes the boy from her, from his mother, and carries him up to the loft, and he prays to God. And basically, paraphrasing here, he says, Lord, why have you done this to these people that I've stayed with? God, as he often does, and especially here, he's testing one of his people with adversity. Elijah, leaning on that prayer life that he established back at the brook Kareth, stretches himself on the body three times while praying, Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The boy now taken alive, or I'm sorry, now alive, is taken downstairs to his mother, at which point she cries out that Elijah is indeed a man of God, and the words he speaks are from God. So at this point, we are about three years uh, into this drought when we've seen this, this fifth scene uh, take, unfold and take place. And it's a meeting that happens out in the wilderness between a man named Obadiah and Elijah. And Obadiah is the head of King Abraham's household. He's the one, he's the one that makes things go, right? Whatever needs to happen, he, ignore, he, he organizes everything. So in the story, Ahab and, and gets, comes to uh, uh, Obadiah and says, Look, all the animals in the kingdom are getting ready to die. Whatever we have left is getting ready to perish. So we need to go, we need to find all the grass and water we can. So they simply split the kingdom up, Ahab goes one way, Obadiah goes another. And all, while Obadiah's out doing what the king has told him to, looking for grass and water, he runs into Elijah. And, and the, the, the conversation between Elijah and Obadiah, without reading it fully, goes like this. Obadiah, go back, tell King Ahab, I have returned. And Obadiah goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. No, no, I'm not doing that. You realize what's going to happen if I go back and tell Ahab that you're back? If I get the sentence completely out of my mouth, I'll be dead after that. I'm not doing that. Elijah said, no, 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 that's not what I want you to do. Go tell him I've returned. Obadiah, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Anyway, like I said, lots of back and forth, like three or four paragraphs, Obadiah, ends up going back and talking to King Ahab and tells him, hey look, Elijah's back. He wants to talk to you. So, now we're in 1 Kings 18, uh, I'm sorry, 1817. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, it is you, you troubler of Israel. And Elijah answered and said, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Well, we're going to stop right here real quick. Let's talk about that. So, if you've read any of the Old Testament at all, you know that Israel didn't start out with kings. They didn't have a king. They had prophets. But they wanted to be like all the other countries. So God finally consents. And gives them a king. Starts with King Saul. And then there are a succession of kings in Israel that 
succinctly fall into two categories. Those that follow the commandments of God, and at which point Israel prospers and they don't have any problems, and those that fall on the other side that ignore God, which is when all the bad stuff happens to Israel. If you've read anything at all about the Old Testament, Israel's in bondage, out of bondage, in bondage, out of bondage. God is always saving them because they get themselves into trouble. I made the connection last two weeks ago. I used to say, I don't understand how they could be that dense, generation after generation, to ignore God's favor. But the connection I made two weeks ago is, I got to thinking, generation after generation, we're no better. We, in fact, have it easier today, not easy, easy. We have it easier today. We don't have to follow all the rules that they had to follow. We had to do one thing, right? Accept Christ and follow what the Bible has to say, right? We don't have to have all these dietary requirements. We don't have to make all these sacrifices because Jesus made the only sacrifice. So I used to think the Jews just didn't understand it, but I think it's just humanity and that, that ugly free will thing that I talked about a couple weeks ago. We won't go back over again. Anyway, so the, it continues in uh, 1819 where it says, Elijah says, Now send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So now we come to that sixth scene, that sixth pic- picture of Elijah's uh, ministry, which is one of, my favorite one about Elijah, and could be almost my favorite one in the whole Bible. Uh, so now Ahab sent out for these prophets and the, and the people of Israel, and they all gather on Mount Carmel to see what the Lord's prophet has, prophet has to say. Pause here just one second. So they come to see what Elijah has to say because the part, another part of the backstory is this. Queen Jezebel has made it her mission since Ahab came into power to exterminate the prophets of God. And the reason the prophets of Baal and Asherah have such prominence is because she's the one that they, that, those are the ones that she talks to all the time. She feeds, that's why the Bible says that are at her table. So that's why they want to come and see if this person, this Elijah, is who he says he is. So Elijah starts out with that finger in the face thing again to all the people and says, how long will you waver between God and the Baal prophets? In 1821, the second half of the verse, it says it like this. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They still haven't come to the realization or believe in what Elijah, or who Elijah is. So Elijah does this. He sets up a contest, right? Easy enough for everybody to understand. He goes, prophets of Baal, you take this altar over here. I'm going to take this one over here. You take, you, there's two bulls. You pick whichever one you want. They pick a bull. They do their thing. They cut it up. They put it up on the altar. And they start praying to Baal. And they do their thing. And they continue, and they continue, and they continue, and nothing happens. And this is one of the reasons, This we come to a part where this is why I like Elijah a lot. I, I'm obviously not Elijah, but I, I can appreciate how he approached this. 
comes to noon, they've been at it a little while, and he starts mocking the prophets of Baal. He's like, hey, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you should shout yell a little louder. Maybe he went on a trip. Keep hollering. Maybe he's out using the bathroom. you got to talk a little louder. Hey, that was not me. That was in the Bible. I just changed the words a lot. But he's mocking them, right? He's getting, he's trying to get to them, and he's making a point with the people of Israel. And basically, the prophet of Baal, prophets of Baal, go crazy, and they start cutting themselves with their swords and and, and lances. And they've cut themselves. So many of them cut themselves. The, their altar is completely covered with blood. Still, nothing happens. So, as, as Elijah. Uh, Still sits there and, and watches and after and, and oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> he's he's finished mocking them. I, I want I'd like so this is just me. This is not this is not the Bible. So I like to think, why? I mean it's not we know it's not nice to mock people. Right? Really not nice. It's not Christian. But I get the I get why he's doing it. But the other half of it is this. I like to think, would he just have been as just as effective? Had he just picked a shady spot somewhere and put his feet up and let them do whatever they were going to do. He knows nothing's going to happen. He knows Baal's not real. Why exert all that energy, hollering and screaming? Well, of course, hollering and screaming. I don't know if he actually hollered and screamed. But anyway, you get the point. He could have just as easily sat down, took a nap, and, and waited until the appropriate time. That appropriate time is this. So he continue, they continue to holler and scream, and then it comes midday. So that would be between noon and the evening. And it's coming close to um, the evening sacrifice that the Jews are supposed to follow. Um, and it's, uh, he says, in 1813, Elijah says to all the people, Come near to me. Come, come here. Gather around. And the people came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great it was contained two seas of seed, measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So, that personality of Elijah comes out again. Did a little showy here. Right? Why? Why the twelve barrels? Bible doesn't tell us why. And so that word, so I, I was a King James guy for a long, long time. In fact, I still read a lot of the, out of the King James. The ESV calls them jars of water. The King James says barrels. So I have this cool little program that, gives, that has what's called a Strong's Concordance in it. And it, it defines words, Hebrew and Greek words. So I'd always like to check. Right? To see where it falls. Yeah, it was no help. No help whatsoever. Because when the Strong's renders the, the I don't know, I, don't, I didn't even write the Hebrew right down, I wouldn't get it wrong anyway. When it renders it, you know what the description says? Jar or barrel. 
So it was no help whatsoever. But because this is a theatrical uh, periods of pictures of uh, Elijah's ministry, we're going to stick with barrel because barrel is way bigger, right? Jar, barrel, right? Anyway, anyway, twelve of them. Now let's think about that. It's been three years of no rain. At least one of the brook that uh, Elijah was sitting at, he didn't get any water out of that. It dried up. Where did they get the water? Where did they get 12 barrels of water? And secondly, what were the people had to be? Th- what did the people have to be thinking when this lunatic that they're listening to tells them to take 12 barrels of water, which they can't afford to lose anyway because there's no rain, and now he wants us to pour it on the sacrifice? Maybe there was a few people of faith still left amongst the people of Israel. I don't know how he'd have gotten anybody other than that didn't have faith to actually pour that water on. So anyway, so um, so we really have no way, no recording of God telling Elijah to put that water on there. But Elijah has that strong relationship with God through prayer, and he is supremely confident that God can do all things. Elijah had already seen that flour and oil not go empty. We have no idea the time period that happened uh, of that where that went on. Uh, and he'd seen God through prayer raise, not only take care of the flour and oil, raise that boy from the dead, and, and that since he's a pro- that prophet from God, we have to infer or assume that he knows some history of Israel, especially from Genesis and all the miracles that God did then. And we find, we, we find that uh, he, Elijah is, in fact, a true believer in God's omnipotence. So the scene takes on a little bit larger and important to the people as uh, Elijah beckons them closer, repairs the altar with those 12 stones that represents the tribes, tribes of Israel. It should have served as a reminder to the people of all things that God had continued to do for them, bringing them out of that peril or bondage time after time. It could also be a point for us to remember that with that strong relationship with Jesus, where we read study and pray that he will be he will prepare and pull us through any problem loss or tragedy that comes into our lives or we can always be assured that if we slip a little or a lot that there's always an open door for us to walk through anytime and reconnect uh, with God Give me one second so we move on to first Kings 1836. And it says, at the time of the offering of the oblation, which is the evening service, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. It's pretty cool, isn't it? So, let's look at it. I have two things in my mind I want to share with you. 
And, and when I read, I like to, I like to try to, uh, instead of just specifically just read through the text, I like to imagine the scene, what's taking place. Helps me a little bit. Uh, so I see two possible things that Elijah could be doing at this point. Once again, just me. Not, not necessarily biblical, just me. Me putting a picture in your mind. Let's pretend this is the altar right here. It's got the wood on it. It's got the stones. The bull's cut up. It's ready to go. Now, Elijah could be right there on top of the altar with his tips of his toes on the trench full of water and going, let's go. I'm ready. Now, obviously, I read it already, so that's not what he said. And bam, fire hits because Elijah knows it's coming. And he knows that he's going to be safe. Okay? That's one picture. This is the way I really think about it. I don't know why, because I'm, I'm weird, I guess. He starts praying. This is the altar. And he's doing this as he keeps praying. Because he don't want to be anywhere near it. Because he knows what's getting ready to happen, right? I don't know. Like I said, this is just me thinking out loud. But you, uh, you, you, you think about that a little bit and... You can ignore me later if you like. All right. So God answers Elijah's prayer in the only way he possibly can with a complete consumption of the altar, offering in water, once again proving his show to his chosen people, uh, that's Israel, that he is the one and only true God. So we're going to move ahead just a little uh, faster. Uh, now Elijah ha- does this. He has the people take hold of those 450 prophets of Baal, takes him down to a brook called Kishon, and Elijah slays, exterminates, kills, whatever word you want to use, all 450 right there, thereby getting rid of them. Move a little bit farther in the story. Elijah goes back up to Mount Carmel, and he has has an assistant with him. The Bible doesn't, can't remember the word the Bible uses. He's got somebody with him. And he prays, God send rain. He sends the assistant around the other side of the mountain, look to the sea, nothing happens. Assistant comes back, Elijah prays again. He does it seven times. Finally, the assistant comes back and says, oh, oh, yep, there's a cloud out there. Turn it black and nasty, it's heading this way. He sends word to Ahab, go back to Jezreel, that's the city, because rain is coming. And actually, Elijah runs back to Jezreel after that and still beats Ahab to the city. So, uh, and then when Ahab gets back in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8, the story unfolds like this. Continues to unfold. With Ahab telling Queen Jezebel that Elijah has killed all the prophets of Baal. That's all he tells her. Really? That's it? Hey, look, you kill all the 450 people you like that you've been feeding all this time? Yeah, they're, they're all dead. Nothing about the sacrifice. Nothing about the water. Nothing about the fire. Let me read something. From Jonathan Hawker's commentary. What an awful character is Ahab. One might reasonably have expected that after such a miracle... And such mercy in God's answering by fire and sending rain to refresh his inheritance that the heart of Ahab 
with all Israel would have been turned to the Lord. Learn from what is, is here said, that neither punishment nor mercy can of themselves reclaim. Uh, nay, I do verily believe that if the souls in everlasting misery could be liberated from their sufferings and were permitted to return to the earth again, their hearts would remain unchanged. Oh, for grace, free, sovereign grace, to turn our souls from darkness to light and from the power of sin and Satan unto the living God. Talking about Jesus there, right? Right? He doesn't know. He's, now, this is wait, wait. The language is a little stilted because it's like 1700s when he wrote it. But, uh, but so let's let's give let me give you a little bit of backstory. So, I told you that Jezebel basically exterminated all the prophets, and she's been feeding all these uh, false prophets. Well, what multiple commentaries I read said this: Ahab was the king. But that the relationship between Ahab and Jezebel was wouldn't what we would think about as a normal king and queen, because they hinted, outright said it, that actually Ahab was while he was the king and the successor, Jezebel was actually the one running things. Now they they, they have a lot more to say, but still relevant to our to our story at this point. But I thought I'd just give you that little bit. So. <clears throat> We are going to move a little foot forward, a little, little bit farther now. Uh, so Elijah um, uh, continues his mission uh, for God, and he ends up doing a number of other things uh, for God, uh, including God's direction to pick a successor. And that successor can be described by the same words as Elijah and John the Baptist, and the apostles for that matter. God sends Elijah to Elisha, a farmer, and he finds him plowing in a field. So I see this is kind of a, this is a, basically a common theme throughout the Bible. Bible, God selecting common men, everyday people that worked hard, that worked hard, plowing, fishing, working in factories. Not the un, not the uneducated, but not theologians either. God wants to use everyone to advance His kingdom. Will you be ready to answer the call when it comes to you? Pray for the wisdom to see opportunity when it presents itself. Now, I'm going to give you something I gave him earlier. So, pastor's been checking on me all week. Need anything? Need anything? Need anything? Talked to me yesterday. Talking about a lot of stuff here at the church. He's got everything set up. How's it going? Y'all, are you all done? I was done about noon. I'm like, yep, all done. Oh, you have, you have a slide? You want me to do slides? I don't want to do slides. I don't want you to do slides. I just talk. It's fine. I said, but I tell, I'll tell you what. I said, I will, know that, I will tell you this. That if I had some schooling, a little bit better organization, and could type more than two words a minute, I might could do this a little bit more often. <laughs> Second thing I told him this morning is this. I just used the word common and theologians in the same sentence, right? Just a few minutes ago. When I was typing it, I typed so bad, or I spelled so bad, Half the time, spell check can't figure out what I want. It took me four tries to get spell the word common. Four. Four tries. Yeah, Diana's looking at me like, are you crazy? Four times. Four shots of spell the word common. You know how many times it took me to spell theologian? Once. Grace of God, I guess, because there is no way. I'm just, and I hit enter, knowing full well that it wasn't going to do. 
Really? I actually spoke it into my iPhone so it would come up and go, oh. So anyway, all right, that, that was free. All right, so we're, we're going to we're wrap it up here. So uh, we're coming to the end now. Not Like I said, I said earlier, end is a bad word. We'll just say, yeah, we'll say end of Elijah's story here in the Old Testament. Uh, in 2 Kings 2, 1 through 11. And the, board, the, the story tells us a lot about Elijah and Elisha. And I'm just going to paraphrase it real quick here. Uh, uh, Elijah's been teaching Elisha a lot of stuff. And, and they're, they're traveling. And Elijah keeps trying to get Elisha to stop following him. Because Elijah knows what's going to happen. And every city they visit, prophets of God come out and meet them. And I don't know if they pull Elisha aside or not, but they say, hey, do you not know that God is getting ready to take your master? And Elijah goes, or Elisha knows, I know that, just don't talk about it. And it's like three cities in a row that that happens. Elijah tries to get rid of him. I'm not even quite sure. I couldn't figure out why that was going on. And all the commentaries I read didn't really talk about it. So anyway, this happens three times, I think. And they finally get to this, I can't remember what it says, brook, stream, river, whatever. Elijah takes off his mantle, in one translation. Cloak would be a better word for us to understand. And he strikes the water. The water separates. Him and Elisha go across. And it's there that Elisha asks, talks to Elijah, and Elijah says, What? I can't remember what Elijah asks, or Elisha just says, Hey, look, I, I want a double, a, portion, a double portion of grace since you're getting ready to leave. That's, that's what I want. And Elijah says, You really don't know what you're asking for, but I'll tell you this if you see me leave, you'll get that double portion. But if you don't see me leave, then you're not going to get it. So the story tells us this. And this is why I said, it just he doesn't die. Because I don't even really know exactly what happens. But a chariot of fire and horses of fire come down between the two of them and separate them. And this whirlwind picks up Elijah and takes him away. And Elisha now has to go on and continue his ministry. Now I did say, so this is not the end, because here's what happens. We do see Elijah again, but it's in the New Testament, in Matthew 17.3, at Jesus' transfiguration that happens in front of Peter, James, and John, Elijah and Moses are seen of the apostles talking with Jesus. So I talked about Mechizeldeck a little bit, and all the stuff surrounding that. Yeah. Elisha, Elijah, man I, man, I kept from doing that earlier and I messed it up and sweat now. Elijah and Moses talked to Jesus. But there's a little bit surround, more surrounding these two gentlemen, these two characters. If you get into prophecy at all, and these are another one of these subjects that I am not qualified to talk about. But if you get into, and I've heard it spoken about a number of times to a number of people that are very respected uh, of their opinion. But there are two witnesses that is going to prophesy during the tribulation. And if you get four people in a room that like to read prophecy, some of them are going to come down. Oh no, the Bible already talked about it. Look, Elijah and Moses showed up with Jesus, so those are the two witnesses. 
But there's a third. There might be another one if I, unless I've lost track of everything. There's a third character in the Bible that did not see death, and that's Enoch. So, the other people on the side of the argument, we go, nope, nope, Enoch and Moses, Enoch and Elijah. Great subject to be able to talk about. Prophecy is a big subject. If you like that kind of thing, I encourage you to read all you can about it. And when you talk to other people, talk. Don't argue. Because nobody knows what's going on. Anyway, that was another little freebie. You, we won't know until we get to heaven. Anyway, so at this point, we are at the end. Everybody should be happy about that now. So as I close, let me tell you about the main point of my sermon here, just in case it was a little too subtle. And I hope it wasn't. Prayer. Prayer is essential to the Christian life for growth and wisdom. Everything that Elijah did in all those scenes that I talked about all revolved around prayer. Let me give you a couple of our, uh, verses here and we'll be done. First Chronicles 16-11. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Matthew 7-7. Seven, seven, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Matthew 7, 7. Let me, let me stop right here real quick and we'll be done. This verse is used a lot by the prosperity gospel people. I'm not saying they're wrong. And I'm definitely not saying that if you have a financial need that you can't pray that, read that verse and pray about that and ask God to take, do your finan- or take care of your financial need because he absolutely will. But this verse works for everything. Everything. All you're doing is asking God to help you, to show you His favor, to help you with that problem, give you wisdom. Just reading the Bible. Look, if you read on a regular basis, and I guarantee you if you read the Old Testament, you need as much wisdom and understanding as you can get. Right? I'm not saying the New Testament is necessarily easy, but the Old Testament, you've got to think. Right? So it, this verse, Matthew 7, 7, works for everything you need in your life. Everything will work well if you continue to have a prayer life with, between you and God. He will pull you through whatever problems that you're having. Well, let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for these good people here today. Uh, I pray that uh, it was a blessing to at least one person, Lord. I pray that uh, that you're even now with uh, uh, Pastor Sherman and all the other adults that are driving the kids up to uh, 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 the, the camp up there. I pray that uh, they had continued our traveling mercies, that uh, the week they're there, that uh, no sickness will befall any of them, uh, no broken bones, no health issues, Lord. We pray that they, uh, they use that time to uh, not only make friendships with all the other kids that will be up there, but that their walk with you will be closer and closer. And we ask that uh, you protect us all until we come back again on Sunday, where the pastor will be back in the pulpit. Uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.